You're listening to Since He Didn't Ask, where Matthew and Andrew tackle questions you might not be asking, but you might find helpful to answer. Questions about life answered through a biblical lens. Welcome to Since You Didn't Ask. I'm Matthew, and I'm here with Andrew. And our question for this episode is, what is TULIP? And uh, that's kind of a, a big question right out the gate. Um, but Andrew, maybe you can just kind of walk through and, and explain just what do we mean when we say TULIP in a theological sense? Okay, sure. So, um, yeah, I just Googled it before we started, and I got the flower. So it's not it's not that <laughs> it's not the flower. Uh, no, it's in a in the theological world. It's an acronym, and each letter stands for um, sort of a, a piece of the system that's often called the doctrines of grace, or you might have heard it uh, called Calvinism. Or um, are there other terms that I'm? Yeah, those are the probably those the, are the, the sovereignty ones. of God and sovereignty salvation. Sovereignty of God, yeah, so, monergism. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Those are maybe even more specific more, kind yeah. of facets of. Right, right. So just to go through the letters, the, the T is stands for total depravity. And I'll just tell you what they stand for, and then we'll unpack them later. So right. total depravity, U, unconditional election, L, limited atonement, I, irresistible grace, and P is perseverance of the saints. So or preservation. Have you... I've heard some people use yeah preservation. I actually like, I like preservation that one better. better. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll go with preservation of the saints. So yeah, we can we can get back to that. Um, but I think why we wanted to address this just very quickly. One, it shows up these these doctrines show up all over the Bible. Two, um, these are are questions that I think. Christians wrestle with all the time, and so for some of the people who might listen to this, this might be like old hat. They've heard all of this tons of times, but there's always um, people coming to the subject new and fresh and just asking lots of questions. And I think it would be helpful to give kind of just a general brief overview from an introductory standpoint, and that would be helpful. Um, do you, by the way, before we get into this, do you use the term Calvinism very much? I avoid it almost at all costs. So do I. Um, what, what do you say? I don't know what I say. Uh, I, I just avoid it. Uh, <laughs> well, okay. This is maybe, I don't want to go too far off cause we want to stick to, um, kind of this overview, but I do think when you talk about acronyms or, or labels or things like that, there's a lot of people that'll say like, I'm not a Calvinist, I'm a Biblicist and right. only the Bible. And some of that is a little bit frustrating cause I think these are just ways to quickly say, what you're thinking without having to explain the entire thing every time. Right. Yep. Uh, I think everyone who loves the Lord, you know, don't quibble with me on this one, but everyone who loves the Lord, we're trying to be biblical. Right. Uh, whether you're tulip or a tulip minus uh, the, the U or, or whatever. whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, I think, um, I think this is actually a helpful acronym. Um But I do avoid those terms just because I, I think we do want to emphasize that, we're trying to read the Bible and yeah, and go with that. And I think oftentimes the, the, some of those terms carry certain baggage or weight that oh, just makes it harder. But yeah, we want to say what the Bible says, but this, this acronym I think is helpful in summarizing uh, some of these, these doctrines as it relates to uh, how God saves people. And so we start off with the T, and the T again is total depravity. Um, 
And one of the things that I think is, has been helpful for me in thinking about total depravity is, is this definition that says that total depravity doesn't mean, when we say total, um, you're totally depraved, it doesn't mean that you are as bad as you could be. You're not, every human being is not the worst possible version of themselves, but rather they are entirely depraved in that every facet of their being is compromised by sin. So their emotions, their their way of thinking, um, their bodies, everything about a human being has every been every aspect of every us. aspect yeah. has been infected by sin and is therefore um, one faulty and two under the condemnation of God. And so um, when we say total depravity, that's what we mean. It's like that some some people we're all restrained, but to a certain degree by God's grace from being as bad as we could be. But everything is infected. Is that a fair way to explain? Yeah, that? no, I think I think that's great, and I think what that kind of is setting up for in in terms of um, how it fits into the whole w- biblical kind of system of talking about salvation is that it means that when we approach God or when we um, in our relationship to God, there isn't any piece of our being that could merit like any favor from him or you know there was something special in us that drew us towards him like his love that comes towards us when you look at it through this kind of total depravity lens that that we would argue is biblical um there isn't anything that drew him to us other than he is love and he's loving um and even i've heard people talk about you know we have like the we're created in his image or um some people talk about like a spark of divinity in us or whatever um that, that's all given from him if there's anything in it. So, sure. um, yeah, sorry. No, that's great. Um, a couple of verses just to underline this. Um, one, uh, a verse that has been very helpful for me is actually in John 3 in Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus. And he says um, that men loved darkness rather than light. Um, that for me is, is foundational for understanding this doctrine that um, people want to know about free will. How much free will do you have? Um, my answer to that always is you have all the free will you want. Like you, you do yeah. what you want. Yep. The problem is that when you're contaminated by sin, all you want is sin. Yeah, it's what you want is the problem. You, yeah. you love darkness rather than light. And so you are chasing darkness. You're chasing sin and you are doing exactly what you want. But until God opens your eyes and changes your heart, then that's where you're going. So that's that would be a picture of total depravity. And so in that, that's why Paul says in Romans 3, um, starting in verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. And again, that's just underlining. We all do what we want. We all have free will, but our will is contaminated by sin because every part of us is and we chase sin only. Would you agree this is maybe the hardest hardest and kind of most important starting point for being in relation right relationship with God? Yeah. I yeah. feel like people really and people me included like there's always this little speck in you that wants to hold on to something that can be attributed as good to me. Yeah. Um yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And this this is a it's a foundational reality that we have to come to grips with to understand God's love and to really understand the cross. So that brings us to you, unconditional election. Um, you kind of alluded to this already. It's hard to talk about one without the others. Yeah. Um, 
R.C. Sproul has a helpful quote. He says, God does not foresee an action or condition on our part that induces him to save us. There are no, there are no conditions to his choosing to save us. That's what unconditional election means. And it's not that God looks down the corridor of time and sees that Andrew is going to be smart enough to choose to follow God. Um, there's, because there's nothing in me that there's would. There's nothing in you. You're totally right. depraved. Right, right. So um, uh, it's, it's completely without condition that God chooses whom he chooses. Uh, yeah, so this would be yeah nothing, nothing in us that draws him to us and nothing— um, I'm thinking of like places like Romans nine, where it talks about eth- ethnic divides or any. There's just nothing unique about us in any way, other than God chooses to pour out His love in this way um, on those who trust Him. Yeah. So speaking of Romans nine, starting in verse ten, it says, "And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born." And had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Um, that's that's the, the nature of God's choosing, the nature of God's calling is it's, he, he chooses before we're even born, um, before you've even done anything. Um, so unconditional election would just be simply God's choosing completely independent of anything in us at all. There are no conditions to that election. Should we move on since it's an overview? Yeah. I, we may circle back. I, okay. there's, I think there's big questions on that that come up, but maybe yeah. we even do more episodes or yeah. something. Okay. So then the L, though, the, this is the one that uh, people often, I had a hard time with this and I could, I'll okay. say, um, I think I was like 28 or 29 years old before, and I'd been looking at this in a lot of different ways, um, before it like clicked for me. And okay. once it did, like on the L, like I was good with the T, the U, the I, the P, the L, I was having a hard time with. And then all of a sudden I remember the day, like I was in Scottsdale, Arizona. Um, and all Weird. of a sudden okay. it just like, it landed on me and I, and I thought, oh, I, I get it now. Okay. So anyway, my point being people who, if you struggle with this limited atonement, the, by the way, the idea, yeah, <laughs> sorry, L is the is limited atonement. Thank you. The L, um, if you struggle with this, um, I would just say, I relate, I struggled with it for a long time. And then once, um, there is a place where you can have a really hard time understanding it. And then kind of it, once things kind of click, then it seems not complicated at all. Yep. But maybe you want to go ahead and speak to the to the limited atonement. Yeah. Okay. So limited atonement is is the view basically. Um, you may have to correct me. I'm I'm not super solid on this, but I think it's it would be the the view that Jesus's death was to purchase a specific group of people. Um, and what people often have a hard time with is is they will kind of say, um, oh, so then he didn't die for everyone. Right. Um, and how can we then tell people, you know, right. you can, you can believe in Jesus. And this kind of actually goes back to the unconditional election thing of, um, does this mean that, you know, there are people who will want to be saved, but they're not part of the chosen elect. Right. So they can't yep. be, you know, so yep. you can go on that. Yeah. So well, just, so we don't leave that hanging. That goes back to the T total depravity. There's nobody who wants to be saved apart from God's supernatural intervention to give them a new heart. And that actually is what sets up this limited atonement. Um, couple of quick comments on this. First of all, every believer, whether they realize it or not, believes in some form of limited atonement. Jesus died on the cross, and unless you're a universalist who says that everyone is saved, 
you at least believe that Jesus's death on the cross, the value of that is limited to those who believe. That's, that would be a limited atonement. Um, and so um, we take that a step further, though, and I think that what, what helped me to understand this and where it really clicked for me is this idea that um, Jesus's death on the cross was of infinite value. So whether Jesus died just for you, Andrew, or for you and me, or for the whole world, the price paid is exactly the same. Infinity. You don't, it's like an infinite check. Right. You don't have like double infinity, triple infinity. Okay. It's just infinity. So we can, we, can, um, uh, we can genuinely say that Jesus's death on the cross paid a price that was worth the sins of all of history. We can we can Could say cover that for every human if he chose. Right. Okay. So it was it, the value was was enough to pay that. The question is, if atonement is limited, and this is why it's often called particular atonement or definite atonement, because it goes. I, I like I like the term actually more atonement, um, as opposed to limited atonement, <laughs> because the atonement covers the sins of all people in its value. But then he does something even more, and and kind of the key to understanding that for me was in First Corinthians eleven twenty five when Paul is talking about the giving of the of the bread and the cup, and he says in the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, "This cup is the new covenant in my blood or by my blood." Jesus, by his death on the cross, purchased the new covenant, and the new covenant we know from lots of places, but specifically Ezekiel thirty six, um, starting in verse twenty six. The new covenant is God takes out our heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh. He gives us a new heart. So go back to total depravity. Nobody desires God. We love darkness rather than light. Every part of us is contaminated by sin. But God sends his son, Jesus, who dies on the cross, pays an infinite price that's good enough to cover all sins. But in order to activate the value of that atonement— you have to have a heart that believes and that sees Jesus as Lord, sees Jesus as your only hope. And so what Jesus did at the cross by his blood was he purchased a new covenant, which is for every person who would be saved, Jesus bought a new heart that that heart would believe and see him as their only hope and would turn from their sin and see Jesus as their savior. And so that's what this doctrine is is really referring to. And so we can genuinely say to anyone, if you trust in Jesus— Absolutely. He paid for your sins, yep. and you know that that's a genuine offer. It's a genuine offer, and um, what what this entire idea of tulip or God's sovereignty, or how about just theology, is rooted in, is that we're talking about the realm of the supernatural. We're not talking about natural means. You know this. I'm I'm not going to logic anybody into believing. I'm not going to convince anybody. It takes uh, uh, the supernatural act of God, which is why we can look at Romans one. And we see that Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. There's something about the power of God that has to be unleashed. And so we can look at Romans 8 and Romans 9 that are flooded with um, references to God's sovereignty and election. And then Paul follows it up with Romans 10. And we have to send people to actually say the words because it's in the words of the gospel that the power of God is unleashed. And so we're we're absolutely agents of God to bring about um, the, the spreading of the gospel, and we don't know how God is going to use that. So we bring it to everybody genuinely, and if you genuinely believe you're going to be saved, you're just not going to believe unless the power of God is unleashed on you to change your heart. And, and one uh, practical note, too, on this, uh, I think that these 
doctrines that that the Bible teaches are really freeing for us on on two in two ways. Uh, first, it doesn't rely on you to get people into heaven. That's a supernatural work of God, and he's going to save his people. doesn't mean we're going to be lazy or anything like that, but it means that you can go to sleep at night because you know that uh, it's God that's in control and that not one of his sheep will be lost. And then secondarily, it's helpful because there is a passage where Jesus talks about, I've got to go to this other place because I have other sheep that aren't from this fold. And so when you go and you share the gospel, you might have no success in in the sense of seeing people saved but but you know that there are people out there for whom Jesus has purchased he's going to give them a new heart um you just you just be faithful to to live a godly life and tell others about him and um we know that the holy spirit's going to do that work yeah i was going to go to the same passage okay. uh, john chapter 10 um Jesus says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Um, I hear that, and I'm putting a little, I, I don't want to mess with Jesus's words, but what I'm understanding him to say is there are other sheep, and they're going to listen to my voice, and we as the ambassadors of Jesus, exactly. uh, taking his voice, his word, we take it to the world, and Jesus is saying, I have sheep not of this fold, go get them Christian. Yeah, um, exactly. And so that's, that's our call. And so, yeah, we don't, it, maybe even more literally, I'm going to get them through you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, that's great. Um, and so, yes, you're right. This is totally liberating and freeing for the, the believer. You're, you're not going to mess anybody up. Um, just be faithful and, and point people back to Jesus. And so, so that's the L we have T um, total depravity, we have U, unconditional election, L, limited atonement, and then we come to the I, which is irresistible grace. Yeah, so irresistible grace, um, the way I like to think of it is not irresistible in the sense of um, forcing, but irresistible in the sense of when you see something that's so beautiful or you smell food cooking that's so good you have to wander over. Um, no one made you do that. But yeah. the beauty of it was so compelling, and that's so. So, what irresistible grace is the idea that that um, because we're totally depraved, God has to do a supernatural work to open our eyes to cause us to see that that you know the sin that we love is actually ugly, and now we he, we hate it, and the God that we hated it is actually beautiful, and now we love Him. Um, and once He opens our eyes in that way, we would call it irresistible because you you can't um, it. it He's too good, too beautiful, too amazing that once he changes your heart, you it's like a tidal yeah. wave. You can't fight it. Yeah. So I think that the most important passage on this point is actually in Ephesians 2. And uh, that's where it says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And so we were all spiritually dead at one point, completely incapable of responding to any spiritual truth until God supernaturally opens our eyes and opens our hearts. And the good news is, is that's exactly what he does. In verse four, it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then we get the key phrase, by grace, you have been saved. And this is irresistible grace. Um, 
Second Corinthians chapter four, starting in verse four, it says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, because men love darkness rather than light, right? We can't see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Going on in this passage, it says, who is the image of God? For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's how it works. God, when he created the world, he said, let there be light, and there was light. And God says exactly the same thing. So for those hearts that he's purchased at the cross in that limited atonement or more atonement, um, he purchased hearts. And then when God says, let there be light in those hearts, the light comes on, we see Jesus, and we just want Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and And... We intuitively know this, right? Because for the believer, you know there's not going to be sin in heaven. And it's not that you lose free will in heaven. You just totally see Jesus and you just want him and sin holds zero attraction to you. That's the irresistible grace that you're talking about, that it becomes fully manifest um, in heaven. And there's lots of other verses. We won't take the time to get into it. There, the Bible is full of passages about this. I was actually, can I jump in real quick? Yeah. There's a few passages. If you want to go to a few spots and quickly get a picture of a lot of this kind of densely packed, Ephesians chapter one and two, Yep. second Corinthians chapter four that Matthew just referenced, um, John six Probably yep. John yep. ten. Um, help me add if there's. Well, any more. I would just what I would Romans nine. Uh, well, yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Yes. No. There's, it's it's all over the Bible, right? But um, I would just kind of wrap up this point with First um, Peter one. Actually, blessed be the God yeah. and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, not according to because. Andrew is such a stud, but according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Um, he's caused that. He's he's done that because he's opened our eyes and we are irresistibly drawn to him. And this passage, the reason I wanted to finish this, because it takes us right to the P, perseverance, or we said preservation of the saints. This is what people would refer to as like once saved, always saved. The reason that once you're saved, you're not going to lose your salvation if you're genuinely saved is because you didn't save yourself. If you had anything to do with saving yourself, then you could unsave yourself. But since it's entirely God's work, then once you're saved, he's going to keep you. And so this verse that I just read, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then it continues to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There's a sermon to be preached, by the way. If like you ever want just this phrase that we have an inheritance and we are by God's power being guarded through faith. Like your salvation is being guarded through faith in some way. So your faith is is part of it, but it's God's power that gives you that faith and that holds you and, and, and it's guarded and being kept and it's imperishable and undefiled and you can't lose it. Um, you know, that, that has to, first, first Peter one, that whole section has to be like one of the best written, written passages and like ever. anything ever written. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also think, I do think this one's in John six about no one will, Jesus says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Um, yeah, that's actually, I believe, oh, wow. I'm 
blanking on this. Is, is it that John something? 10 or is it John 6? I just taught through John 6. I actually can't um, remember. Maybe it's John 10. I think it's that, that part is in John 10. But Jesus says no one comes to the Father um, except um, that the Father draws him. Mm-hmm. Oh, and is that the part where it says and no one will snatch them out of his hand? It might I, be. I honestly can't remember. I'm getting it garbled a little bit. Yeah, I am too all of a sudden. Um, well, so you, here we are live like on on our podcast messing up one of the most famous passages in the whole Bible. So if you ever do that, you're welcome. We do that too. Um, sorry, you were going to say something? No, I was going to say while you look for that, um, I do think it's important just to note um, the analogy I think of with this the Bible uses a lot of language that tells us to basically keep holding on to Christ. And I think about with my kids when sometimes when I pick them up and I'm holding them, I'll tell them like, hold on tight, but I'm not, even if they let go, I'm still going to hold them. Um, and I do think you can take this idea and use it to justify sin or to think that you can continue in willful disobedience and that, that, you know, it, this, this doctrine is not saying that. It's saying that uh, for those who, who have truly been given a new heart, God will keep them trusting him to the end. And the Bible has this incredible mix where it says things like, no one will snatch them out of my hand, but there are what are called warning passages everywhere uh, throughout the Bible that, that basically say, keep on holding on to Jesus, even though he's the one that's actually holding on to you. Yeah, absolutely. Because the heart that sees Jesus as their only hope is going to hold on to him with everything that he has. I I used this uh, um, in a recent teaching, trying to put together, this is a little bit off topic, but I think it relates. How are we to understand fearing the Lord as believers? And I've been noticing lately how many songs talk about all fear is gone. Um, I don't fear. But yet the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And um, there's all these passages about fear. So um, putting this all together just very quickly, we fear the Lord. Um, when you're not saved, you should fear the Lord because you should be petrified because you are under the wrath of God, which is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Um, but um, Isaiah feared, feared the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6 mm-hmm. because he saw the power and the might of, of all that Jesus that was revealed to him. Um, I think we fear the Lord in the sense that we are about ready to step into a pit that is an, an endless abyss, and out of nowhere, Jesus comes behind us and grabs us and holds us, and our eyes are opened, and we see the pit, and we realize what should have happened. And not only that, we realize he should have pushed us into the pit, but rather, going to your picture, he's holding on to us, and we know there's no way in the world that he's going to let go of us. And... So you can, you can take that picture, you turn and you hold on to him, even though you're holding on, doesn't do any good, but you're scared to death of that pit, knowing that you, at the same time, you have no reason to fear it because you're totally and entirely safe. That's the heart of the believer is knowing what you deserve, knowing that he should have pushed you in, but he's got a hold of you and he's not going to let go. And for the believer who really understands that, you're just going to hold ever more tightly to him. Um, so, um, yeah, I think that's uh, that becomes a, a really important part of that equation. So the uh, the verse that we were trying to to come up with, um, John six forty four says, "No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day." Um, and um, and so that's the the part where we say, "No one, no one comes without the Father drawing." So that would go to which of the of the tulip? I'd probably put that in total depravity and um, 
Irresistible grace. Yeah, that irresistible grace um, component is, um, yeah, he's, he's, he's drawing. drawing. And then it's the John 10, 28, um, which is the verse that we were um, kind of alluding to before where Jesus says, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is where he says, my father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And then he says, I and the father are one. Hmm. So they're holding on to us together. Uh, but yeah, I often, I, I'll, I'll often mix up John 6 and John 10 because there's a lot of parallels between those, yeah. those chapters. I did want to hit one thing before we wrap up and, yeah. and maybe more if you have more, but um, there is a version, I guess you could say, that that comes up in different cultures. I know, um, I think in the Spanish-speaking world, this might be a little more common, but hyper-Calvinism, it's called, which basically a lot of the things we've warned against, it kind of leans that way. So it would... Um, it, it would just twist some of these and take them further than the Bible would describe. Um, and I would just say that that is often what gets a bad rap for Calvinism in general. Um, and so just, uh, just a reminder that uh, the God of the Bible and the God of Calvinism, if it's, if it's biblical, um, is, a, is a joyful God and a loving God. And all of this fits within both of those two categories and flows from them. Um, it's a God of love that that irresistibly draws people who have no reason to be, have no beauty in themselves. He just overflows in love to create us, to rescue us, to draw us to himself, to open our eyes, to give us a new heart, and then to hold on to us to the very end. Um, and so if you hear people kind of railing against Calvinism and that it's an angry God or any of these kind of things, um, that that's not the what we're talking about and that's not the description in the Bible. But yeah, I mean, sometimes it does get represented that way. Yeah, super helpful. Um, I think the way that we can frame that is um, when we are understanding these doctrines, and this is helpful to understand lots of the Bible, um, we always want to to view things through the lens of desire. Um, desire is the um, is is kind of the, the the key element in this equation. You sin not because anybody's making you to sin, not because anybody's dragging you into sin, but because you want to. And then when you want to follow Jesus, no one's dragging you to Jesus or forcing you to Jesus. Your eyes are just opened and you see him for who he is and you desire him. You want him. And so when we understand all of this through that context of you do what you desire— and um, it either leads you towards sin or towards Jesus. Um, it helps to, to, I think, put some guardrails there. Mm-hmm. Where I would wrap us up here for this episode is just a reminder, why is this important? Why do we care? There's lots of reasons, but 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 26, I think gives some clarity. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and, redep- and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. This is to fuel our worship. This is to fuel, to, to strip us of anything we can boast about in ourselves and to say it's all because of him and to worship him. And so the more we understand this, the more it, it lowers us in humility, but raises us in, in joy and thanksgiving and gratitude and worship and praise, and, and that's what it's supposed to, to do for us. 
Great. Well, I think that will wrap it up for us today. And we hope this was helpful to you. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time. These are